Justin Legg is a retired Navy SEAL officer who graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 2000 with a B.S. in Systems Engineering. He was a member of Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, or BUDS, Class 234, and became a plank owner of SEAL Team 7. While with SEAL Team 7, he deployed to the Middle East twice and participated in combat operations in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After returning from Iraq, he transferred to Special Boat Team 22 in Mississippi, where he served as a task unit commander and the team training officer. Justin medically retired from the Navy in 2012. He completed his master's degree in international relations from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. He works in energy resilience as a consultant to the Department of Defense. We'll unpack Justin's personal story of unprecedented resilience during this conversation, but for now, let me welcome you to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Patty. I just want to acknowledge why we're both calling in, and that's because we're still in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak here in New York City. So I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me during this crisis. But I want to rewind on the timeline a bit to your high school years, or perhaps even earlier than that. When did you know that you wanted to serve in the military, or more specifically, when did you know that you wanted to be a Navy SEAL? Oh, boy. This is the one question I dread, because the truth of the matter is that Charlie Sheen inspired me to become a SEAL. Um, <laughs> the first time I ever heard about Navy SEALs was when I was in seventh or eighth grade, and I saw the movie Navy SEALs. thought, wow, that looks like a really cool job. You get to jump out of planes, go diving, play on the beach, blow things up, shoot people. It sounded like an awesome job. So, um, you know renting videos about it, uh, going to the library, looking at books, you know, and the more I got into it, the more I, I realized, you know, maybe it's not all the, uh, the James Bond type stuff that you see in the movies, but it sure as hell sounded like an awesome place to be with a lot of, you know, real high performing individuals. I always played sports. I always enjoyed the team environment and the challenge of it, the fact that there was always something new that you had to know and do and be responsible for so many different types of things really drew me to it it wasn't just brains or brawn you needed both so it was definitely something i figured out by the time i was in eighth grade or had finished eighth grade that that was definitely what i was going to do i definitely want to unpack that a little bit more so can you tell us a little bit about your four years at the u.s naval academy what did you enjoy there I think the rigor was actually enjoyable for me. Yeah, I, I grew up in a household with, I wouldn't say very strict, but more strict than most of the people I went to grade school and high school with. Parents had rules, and the rules were be respected. And so being at the academy, that, that kind of was a natural transition for me and um, was actually really helpful for me. You know, I think the fact that our, our liberty was restricted really helped me to buckle down with studies because high school came very easy to me. I didn't have to study in high school and pulled straight A's. Whereas when you get into the academy and an engineering program, it doesn't really how smart you are. You have to study. Mm -hmm. um, it's not kind of things that come naturally to nearly anybody. Although there were a few geniuses in our class. 
it also gave me a lot of time to get into sports and to do my my own workouts. And there was a lot of camaraderie there. Mm-hmm. So like I said, you know, I enjoyed team environments and the academy itself seemed to be one big team environment. So there was there was a lot about it that I enjoyed. The getting in trouble part wasn't that much fun. <laughs> and um, I did graduate with a company record in demerits. Um, oh, wow. I didn't have that written in my in my notes. <laughs> yep. It wasn't that big of a problem. Most of it was little things. I got caught for one big, huge one, you know, breaking curfew and going all the way out to D.C. one mm-hmm. night. Yeah, I got caught. That's up to it. Said I did it. Didn't try to make any excuses and got woken up at five or well, I had to be up and marching in a square at 545 every morning in February and March on the Naval Academy grounds with cold winter winds whipping through. Oh, wow. Well, going back to your education, you studied systems engineering, which from my understanding is one of the most rigorous majors at the Naval Academy. So why systems engineering? Systems engineering, the way people hear about it today is a lot different than what we did. There, it was, it's basically control systems engineering. So it's examining all the different parts of a system. So say, for example, you have a rocket, you know, you have the propulsion, you have the guidance, you have the warhead, you have radars, and all those things need to connect to each other to be able to work. And that's what a control systems engineer does, is connect all those things together. So you had to learn several different engineering disciplines. A lot of it was uh, electrical engineering and mechanical engineering, but also thermodynamics and fluid dynamics, tons of math. So it was just kind of the same reason that I wanted to go in the SEAL team, that you have to learn and know and be very good at several different things. Mm-hmm. I've always had a uh, something inside of me that seeks knowledge and mm-hmm. in many different places. I enjoy that part of it. And you also mentioned how much you enjoyed sports and team sports. So what did you play? I was on the wrestling team all four years, but I never really got to wrestle. I was undefeated, 2-0. <laughs> it seemed like there was always somebody who was just a little bit better in me than me in my weight class. You know, my freshman year, I, I knew I was sitting in the back. But each year, as I got better, there was always somebody just a little bit better than me. So I didn't see much varsity time, but I still enjoyed wrestling. Mm-hmm. And then my sophomore year, I went out for the uh, sprint football team, which is a league at the time everybody had to weigh 165 pounds uh, a day or two days before the game. And I wrestled at 165 pounds. So it was just one big season from the beginning of the school year all the way through till March of keeping my weight down to 165 when I was normally a guy who was walking around about 190. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Um, but it it helped me out a lot. In fact, it helped me huge when it came to senior year and you do a final physical test to rank guys in order for their physical test right before the interview to become sealed or get a spot to buds. And I had been, you know, down at my weigh-in weight at 165. I'd been rock climbing tons, so I had this awesome grip strength, and I was super light, and I was able to bang out 60 pull-ups for the test. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those, both of those sports and my extracurriculars and being light all at the same time worked out perfect for me to um, do one standout thing that really got a lot of notice. Because before that, 
the top guys were barely breaking into 40 for pull-ups. So it was a big deal. And it, it just seemed to fall in place to help me out. Absolutely. And continuing on this point in the timeline, you know, you graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and were commissioned as an ensign in the U.S. Navy and reported for duty as a SEAL candidate at BUDS. But at the time, much less was known about the SEALs and BUDS than today. So how would you describe your BUDS experience? It was a blast. I loved it. There wasn't a day there that I didn't actually sit and think to myself, at least for a minute or two, wow, I'm actually getting paid to do this. I've always been a guy that's into working out and team sports and doing difficult things. You know, when I was a kid, I also played soccer. I was in the martial arts for six or seven years. You know, I threw javelin, I pole vaulted. I did a lot of stuff and it just seemed like I was playing again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to interrupt, but is there anything that you learned about yourself at Buds that you didn't know prior? Everybody going into Hell Week, I would say nobody who's heading into Hell Week, unless you've rolled back and done it before, nobody has ever stayed up for an entire week. Everybody kind of wonders, how the hell am I going to get through this? And the guys who end up making it are the guys who don't worry about the end. They just worry about the right now and just keep going. And, you know, as the uh, the next difficult thing comes to pass and as, you know, this burst of energy wanes and I go into being sleepy and wanting to lay down, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it and I'll just keep going and I'll just keep going. And so getting through Hell Week in and of itself is a massive accomplishment. Mm-hmm. It does teach you a lot about yourself. It makes you feel like when you come out of Hell Week, it makes you feel like you could stand toe-to-toe with a, you know, 800-pound gorilla in the room and slap him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably mention now that your BUDS class, Class 234, is one of the only BUDS classes ever to be videotaped by people from outside the community and the product still exists in the form of a lengthy discovery channel documentary that's available i think on youtube and i'm guessing that some of our listening audience is familiar with it or might check it out after listening to this podcast but that film was captured i think 20 years ago so is there any commentary that you'd like to add about the documentary now it was the only one that actually captured the class from start to finish before or after or since it's been the only one it was a great time. I was just, in fact, I think it was actually helpful to have that. Um, there was a decent motivating factor that I knew this was going to be on national TV and I didn't want to look bad in front of all my friends who had heard me for years saying that I was going to be a SEAL. You know, so there was a good motivating factor having it around. At times it was annoying because it felt like the instructors knew that they needed to um, put on a good show at times. So we uh, we got a little bit of extra privilege here and there. And, and sometimes there was, you know, when the video cameras would go away, they were a little bit ticked off. And we got the extra privileges that you can't see. <laughs> <laughs> all in all, I liked it. You know, I did get harassed, you know, going through the teams for pretty much my entire time. <laughs> mm-hmm. In this but you know now having it been past me for so much longer and you know i kept off social media until after i got my lung transplant Mm -hmm. and then since then i've had so many young guys contact me that have been like gosh you were huge uh motivation for me you know a lot of guys who went and became seals later on so i've derived a lot of good feelings 
out of that. And then there's also just a lot of civilians who, who you know, were never in the military, never wanted to become SEALs, but they watch that and they take a lot of good lessons away from it. And they, they've told me that I've inspired them going in, in their personal struggles and their daily lives. Mm-hmm. So it actually turned out being quite rewarding. That's a very positive takeaway from that experience. And, you know, aside from the spotlight being a motivating factor, a member or two of the LUF team might be preparing to head to BUDS in the very near future. And I'm wondering, other than that and compartmentalizing, if you have any advice you would give these young men? Well, the biggest thing is compartmentalizing the time factor. When you look at the entirety of BUDS, which I think is now a a 31-week program just for BUDS with the indoctrination of, you know, ahead of it. It sounds like such a daunting task, something that's almost impossible. Because, well, one, you have Hell Week in there, and then you have a ton of other very difficult tasks. Famous among them is the full competency exam where they essentially they try to drown you with your scuba gear on. Mm-hmm. They take it off, tie it in knots, take it apart, and then you have to get your air supply back somehow and then put your whole rig back together and you have to do it in the right order and then put it back on you know and then there's parts of you know land navigation that are daunting for some people you know learning demolition learning weapons and it's a long program and you're going to be cold wet and tired and working your butt off every day so the biggest thing is not letting that entire program just become the one task Mm-hmm. It's breaking it down, like you said, compartmentalizing it into small tasks and more so the time. Don't worry about anything other than the one evolution that you're you're doing at that time. Every workout session or every um, learning session is called an evolution. So let's take it one evolution at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of times for me, it was just, just make it to the next meal. You know, the meals are the only time you get to sit down for about 20 or 30 minutes and eat most of the time without being interrupted. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I want to segue to talk a little bit more about leadership. So what are some of the lessons that you learned about optimal human performance as a leader in the SEAL teams? Well, we were going through, I think, you know, I hit it at a great point in the evolution of the SEAL teams and that we really started looking very heavily at human performance and and optimizing your performance through various, you know, workout programs, uh, nutrition, mental health, that sort of thing. And it, it's, it was growing, been growing, and will continue to go through this evolution. One of the big things I learned is, you know, getting away from that feeling of uh, invincibility when you're in your early 20s. And it took me a while to learn, but looking back now, it's helped because a lot of times we, uh, we trash our bodies to get missions done. You know, and that will be expected of us from time to time, and that's just how it goes. Some of the things we do are very unnatural and you can't really prepare for it. But it's it's learning to take care of yourself more. Unfortunately, I didn't get the message, you know, until several years in that, you know, drinking heavily is not a good way of taking care of your, your optimal performance. Mm-hmm. So it was learning to grow up a bit, getting away from those bad habits that were not optimizing your either your mental or your physical health. You know, when you become the leader of a platoon or you become one of the senior enlisted persons in a platoon, it's learning how to balance that work hard, play hard 
approach to things because with the difficult work we do, we do need time to blow off steam and have fun, but it's uh, learning how to um, know where the edge of having fun and being detrimental to yourself are and how to portray that as a leader, that it's okay to have fun and do those things, but we still have to know where the limits are before we get the obvious signs from our body. Because once you start getting those obvious signs from your body, you've already you've already stressed it a little too far. That's the perfect segue to my next question, which is, you know, the Leadership Under Fire team places a lot of emphasis on the role and responsibility of the senior man, particularly in a tactical organization. So what roles or responsibilities do the senior enlisted leaders have in SEAL platoons? So the senior enlisted leaders, they have quite a big role as far as shaping the junior SEALs. And even, you know, a SEAL platoon has two officers in it, but the senior enlisted are, are you know, largely responsible for helping to develop that junior officer as well, particularly your platoon chief, who is the highest senior enlisted guy. They're there to make sure everybody is is doing the right things to, you know, be the best operator and be the, you know, the most functional part of the team. And yes, they are directly responsible for everybody in the team. You know, when one guy uh, goops up on Liberty, um, all the senior leaders in, in the SEAL platoon bear a part of that responsibility, whether they were there with him or not. And you led SEALs in a number of different operational environments abroad, and I think it's safe to say that you acquired a considerable amount of operational experience in a short amount of time, particularly given the time period when you were leading SEALs. Is there anything about the SEALs that the media or Hollywood gets wrong in their portrayal? As far as the media, yeah, the media sensationalizes a lot of it, both good and bad. It's fairly obvious we have a, a reputation for doing some really difficult missions. Some of my friends were guys who were on the team that captured bin Laden, um, guys who were on the, uh, the Somali pirate rescue mission. I know uh, some of the guys who were on ops that went really bad. And in the end, we're all still just pretty normal guys that most people would bypass, you know, walking through a mall or sitting down to dinner next to or just pretty normal guys, you know, on the outside. And for a lot of our, you know, wants and needs as far as, you know, raising a family, we're not some sort of a robotic machine that is just tuned for combat. You know, on the bad end, you know, I guess that same image goes to the bad end as well, that, you know, sometimes we're, we're just these robotic machines just there to, you know, engage in combat and other things can fall by the wayside. And that's, that's not the truth. A lot of those things are, are portrayed horribly in the media, you know, well before outcomes anyway. I hate to touch on it, but, you know, there's been a lot of uh, negative press as far as what you call discipline problems where people are banging rules. And, you know, every organization has one bad apple or two, even in the SEAL teams, but that is not the standard. And I really don't see much of a problem within the ranks whatsoever. So it's the reputation we have as war fighters is well-deserved, but we're a lot more than that. I appreciate you humanizing that narrative and thank you for walking us through that time in your life. I wanna turn now to early 2006. You experienced a major setback pertaining to your health. 
for our listeners who maybe don't know, and you did mention a lung transplant earlier, but Justin was diagnosed with a severe form of leukemia. The next six months brought over 50 chemo and radiation treatments and a move to Seattle where you received a bone marrow transplant. Justin, do you mind giving our listeners a brief overview of this time of your illness? Sure. Well, if you back up a little bit, my last deployment overseas, I was exposed to some kind of gas. We don't know exactly what it was. You know, best guesses with doctors was that I got a very small dose of a nerve agent, enough to hurt me, but not enough to kill me. And then had a really bad night when I got exposed to that in the next day, but recovered and I didn't think much of it. And then about a year later, see Hurricane Katrina hit. Uh, I was down in Mississippi at the time. Our house got flooded and we were moved out of our house for about seven months. We got married during that time. I rebuilt the house around us. And as we were just getting to the point where uh, I was almost done with the house, I had been feeling my ability to work out and do strenuous things fade. And I came down to a, a simple blood test after tons of other tests hadn't worked. We went back to the basics. A simple blood test revealed that I had leukemia. So I went to uh, what's now Walter Reed Bethesda. It was uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital at the time. And walked in to the doctor's office about 45 minutes to an hour later. It was confirmed definitely that I have leukemia. And uh, I got a, uh, a big line inserted in my jugular vein that night and started chemo the very next morning. It was kind of an awkward experience, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Never really thought of... Uh, dying during that time. In fact, when um, I was diagnosed with leukemia, the doctor said, for sure, you have cancer. My first question was, can I still be a SEAL? (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't thinking about dying. I wasn't thinking about, you know, what if it was already a predetermined conclusion in my mind that I was going to get through it. I just wanted to know if I could still be a SEAL. And, you know, the doctor's opinion was no, but I just said to her, watch this. And uh, it was six years later, finally, before I got retired from the SEAL team. So yeah, that next six to seven months was was pretty tough. The chemo wasn't the worst for me because I went into it in such good shape. But after tons of chemo that I got set for the bone marrow transplant, you have to get full body radiation for that. And that tore me down pretty bad. So I'm just to be clear on the timeline. So you recovered from leukemia and then transitioned to a new assignment with the SEALs in Virginia Beach, right? Yes. And then two years later, you developed this other major health issue. But then you fought this disease and rehabilitated enough to become an operational SEAL platoon commander. Yeah, it was. Well, so that that disease, that graft versus host disease, kicked in within weeks of the transplant. And we had thought that we had most of the issues resolved within the first two years. And, you know, as I had become a platoon commander again, and then a mistake with my medicine led to a massive flare of the disease which nearly destroyed my liver, gave me a lot of um, facial discoloration. At one point, my head was purple, but, you know, there's been lasting discoloration, you know, my cheeks and my forehead. The big thing is, though, that my lungs took a very severe hit 
from which they eventually never recovered. And it started uh, about a year and a half long downward spiral towards my lungs heading towards failure. So when I said my lungs were heading towards failure, they wanted to get a, a big biopsy, a chunk of my lung to analyze further to see if they could stop me from having to lose my lungs. Um, we thought it would be a few years. What we didn't realize is that my lungs were so scarred that they couldn't heal up from that biopsy and they kept leaking air into my chest cavity in what's called a pneumothorax where all that air gets into your chest cavity eventually it compresses down your lungs and your lungs collapse and so that happened twice the second time it flattened both my lungs to the point where they couldn't recover and i went into full respiratory failure i woke up about 15 days later out of a coma not knowing really what the heck had happened or what was going on. I had some pretty wild hallucinations. I could probably sit and tell you stories for about an hour about all the hallucinations I had coming out of that. Mm. But the big thing was that it was no longer a two to three year time frame of getting new lungs. It was about a two to three month time frame of getting new lungs. And so I got transferred to Duke University where they were going to do my transplant. And I, at this time, had lost 60 pounds. All my muscle was gone. And I had to, uh, I couldn't even stand on my own. And I had to learn how to walk uh, one mile. I could have all the oxygen I wanted, but I had to learn how to walk a mile. Mm-hmm. And I had about one month left to do it. That was the requirement to get listed. So it took me from the time of learning to stand on my own to learning to walk that mile. took me just under a month and they put me on the list for a transplant. And my lungs, they don't go by, um, you know, first come first serve. They go by who's in the worst shape and who has the best probability for an outcome, a good outcome. Mm -hmm. I got called up 24 hours and six minutes after I was put on the lung transplant list to go in and get my transplant. And um, if I hadn't gotten it, I think I had, well, doctors tell me I, I probably only had another week, but I think I had another month in me, five, six weeks, because mm-hmm. I was down to 13% of normal lung function mm-hmm. when I got my new. And coming back from that was, uh, well, hell, I'm still coming back from that, to be quite honest. <laughs> Hi, listeners. I want to take a moment to announce the 2020 Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development Course. The LDC consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The LUF advisory team for the event includes LUF founder Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, retired FDNY Lieutenant Danny Murphy of Rescue 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Early bird registration is available from February 1st through April 15th. Registration is limited to 18 leaders lodged on the farm and six lodged at nearby hotels, so act fast. For more information or to register, visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the events tab. Now, let's get back to the episode. Well, so where did your lungs come from? A 19-year-old boy who grew up in Florida. His name was Jared Carter. In fact, his middle name was McKinley, which is really cool because I didn't learn who he was until after I had climbed uh, Denali a year after my lung transplant. 
and Denali was known as Mount McKinley for quite some time. And then I learned that that was his middle name as well. And I, I thought it was a, a pretty eerie coincidence that his lungs just happened to go to me. I love that. Things like that happen for a reason, I believe. So I know this is a very personal question, but what is it like to be the recipient of two lungs that aren't your own physically, mentally, emotionally? This one's especially awkward because my donor did uh, take his own life. And so thinking about that, you know, had I known that young man, what could I have done to maybe turn him away from, from doing that? You know, all those circumstances are horrible, but if it's just a, a freak accident, there's nothing that could have prevented a lot of times those freak accidents. You know, any good thing that could come out of that, you know, like lungs being given to somebody else to continue living would be wonderful. But I don't know, I still wonder about what would have happened, you know, if, if somebody had just gotten to him in time. And it's it kind of hits home because there there's a bit of crisis in the military with um, with suicides. And you know, over these past 20 years of war, particularly due to traumatic brain incidents, traumatic brain injuries. Sorry. So it's uh, I don't know. It's it's really hard to to describe in words. It's an awkward feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very thankful I have, you know, new lungs yet, you know, at times I, I, I do feel like I'm being a, a bit of an asshole about it, excuse my French, because, you know, um, there were a lot of problems with the transplant itself and trying to fit his lungs into my chest and they didn't realize how badly my lungs were scarred into my chest. It took them a very long time to get my lungs out of my chest and his lungs started decaying, so the, the whole procedure didn't go so well, and I only have 60% of normal lungs, whereas most people who get double lung transplants, they're getting about 95% of normal function. You know, bad ones usually are about 85%. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm the very exceptional case, which uh, hell always seems to be the, the, the situation in my life, that it's always a different way for me. Um, you know, I only have 60% of my lungs and it wasn't until very recently, just this past year, where I was able to even use all 60%. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of issues with loss, uh, loss of physical capability and, and, and enjoyment of a lot of things that I used to be able to do and have that I still deal with. And, um, you know, trying to be grateful for the gift that I was given and, and make the most out of it. So it's a big struggle for me. And, and it has led to depression at times, you know, and it goes up and down. I've learned a lot about depression and depressive disorders. But in the same regards, just like that documentary inspired a lot of other people to learn how to go the extra mile and, and learn how to deal with difficult circumstances with a smile on their face, all the things I've gone through and and sharing these things have helped a lot of other people open up about depression or difficult times and and trying to get through it. And a lot of people have contacted me and I've been able to help them in in some ways get through difficult parts in their lives. You know, everything is a blessing and a curse, uh, but then far more of a blessing than a curse. Thank you for sharing all those intimate details. And I, I mentioned earlier, you know, we're recording this in the spring of 2020. 
And we're presently navigating a lethal and global health pandemic that's on a scale and of a magnitude not seen in 100 years. And so by all accounts, those with respiratory issues are the most vulnerable population. So how are you handling this crisis? This actually hasn't been that difficult for me. You know, once you get uh, new organs or a new immune system, you, you get put on medication that keeps it all, keeps your immune system down to stop uh, the bad interactions that you don't want to happen. But consequently, that can also stop your immune system from fighting things like coronavirus or just even common cold. So you have to take a lot of precautions in your daily life. You know, being careful what you touch, who you're around, you know, noticing who has sniffles, who has a cough, staying away from those people, um, not touching surfaces, wiping down surfaces. So this hasn't really been that much of a change for me. It's kind of been what the past 10 years are like, except I'm just staying to the perimeter of my yard, <laughs> except for, you know, the time to take my dogs for a walk. And even then, I I get out of the neighborhood within about five or six houses down the sidewalk and go into a, a big plot of woods and just walk the dogs through the woods. It's avoiding people for right now. Um, and it's, uh, to me, it's just something necessary. It just has to be done. So just do it and keep going. And luckily I do work from home now. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't impacted me in, in that sense that I'm at risk of losing my job. One of the great things for having a uh, department of defense as a client <laughs> You know, obviously the LUF team has devoted considerable attention to exploring and researching the theme of resilience. And I think it's fair to say that you're one of the most resilient people I've ever talked to. I want to make it clear to our listeners that you mentioned climbing Mount McKinley. You're the first double lung transplantee to have ever done that. So, you know, given all the things that we know about you based on this interview, I want to know what anchors you? And do you have any mantras or techniques that you use when you're navigating great adversity? I do, actually. And the first one I I developed was when I got transferred to Duke and I had to learn how to walk again. You know, there's a song by Three Doors Down called It's Not My Time. And it's basically about a guy who's dying, whether it be, you know, dying slowly inside or dying physically on the outside. You can you know, take whatever uh, literary license you'd like with the song, but it's about a guy who's dying and not wanting to go. And he's saying, it's not my time. And I just learned, learning how to walk after that was extremely difficult. I couldn't have any pain medication because it would suppress my respiratory function too far. And I had broken my back uh, we had a, a small helicopter crash with our platoon, and I, I broke two vertebrae during that. And then just in trying to get back to the shape I was in to be a platoon commander again, I broke another three vertebrae. And trying to walk when I'm 130 pounds, when I was normally about 190 pounds of muscle, and now I was all skin and bone, it was god-awful painful. And so I would just keep saying to myself, it's not my time. It's not my time. And just one footstep for each word just it's not my time and it would get completely repetitive and mind-numbing at times but if i just kept that very sole focus of breathe in breathe out take a step 
it's not my time. Breathe in, breathe out, take a step. It's not my time. And then, you know, the breathe in, breathe out, take a step, portion got automatic. And it was just keep saying that to myself with every footstep. It's not my time. And that that's, that's helped me a lot. And sometimes even at night, you know, I suffer from insomnia, which is probably due to a lot of the, the things I've had done to me and a lot of the medication I have to take. So at night, I every now and then just try to get into a calm space and you if you've ever heard uh like mindful breathing techniques or mindfulness techniques just getting down and and getting back to like a uh, a meditative style of breathing and i still repeat that to myself at night just slowly i'm not out loud just kind of helps to calm me down and center me and helps me to kind of get rid of whatever's running through my mind because my mind my mind is like a crowded train station with every train running all the time except the tracks are crossed <laughs> and you gotta try and keep them from crashing into each other <laughs> and so to be able to use that to lay down and try to center myself is is really helpful for me sometimes Actually, last night when I was texting with Jason about like the final details about this interview, he said to ask you about the Zen master and we'll see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the story I, I, I tell often, I'll try and keep it to the quick abridged version. So basically it, it happened somewhere in feudal Japan several hundred years ago. There's a boy in a village who gets a horse for his 15th birthday and everybody says, oh, how wonderful. And making a big commotion, the Zen master comes down to see what's going on. They say, look, Zen master, he got a beautiful horse for his birthday. Isn't that wonderful? He says, we shall see. And walks away. And then the next year, the boy's riding his horse. He falls off, breaks his leg. Everybody gathers around and Zen master comes to see what's going on. They say, oh, God, Zen master, he broke his leg. He's never going to walk right. Isn't that terrible? Zen master says, we shall see. A couple more years go by and, you know, huge war breaking out, armies coming through, conscripting all the fighting age boys that they can find. And they don't take him because he can't walk right. He would be ineffective on the battlefield. And everybody says, oh, how lucky. He didn't get taken away by the army. And the Zen master chimes in, well, we shall see. And it's just basically uh, showing that, you know, what is happening today only becomes good or bad depending on what you make of it or what comes later on. And sometimes you can't see that. You know, we thought that me getting cancer obviously sounds like something horrible, but we did a ton of bone marrow drives to try and find a match for me. And in fact, this always happens every time I'm about to do an interview a couple of days beforehand. I just found out a few days ago. I haven't even, I forgot to tell my wife. I found the 20th person who registered at that bone marrow drive for me that has now given bone marrow to save somebody else's life. So I get sick. Sounds so terrible. Well, we shall see. Because I got sick and we did all these blood drives, now we've had 20 other people become matches to save somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. Something really good came out of me getting sick. And if we had to pick somebody, I, I would have volunteered. And I'd rather it be me because I had a lot easier time with it than, than most people did. You know, and I have, and I still have the opportunity to go on and live a, a really good full life, whereas a lot of other people it may not have 
come out of the other side or may have come out of the other side fairly broken. And you know, it's, it's a different way of looking at things. I think that's great. And I appreciate you sharing that because as we start to wrap up here today, I wanted to ask you, you know, with so many healthcare workers, first responders, grocery store employees, pharmacists, medical scientists, truck drivers, and many, many more on the front lines at this very minute, do you have any words of wisdom or encouragement for them? Well, one, I would just say thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for being who you are and doing what you do and, and helping to keep our society alive and functioning. I have a very, very soft spot in my heart for, especially for nurses. Love my doctors. I have good relationships with several of my doctors, and I haven't gotten to form those lasting relationships with more than but maybe a handful of nurses here and there. But it's been, it's always been the nurses who are there for the really, really difficult times. And they're the ones who have to watch the patients struggle and try to help any way they can. And a lot of times knowing that there's only so much that they can do. So I, I really just a big thank you to the nurses, especially. They're all very near and dear to my heart. But for everybody else, well, nurses, doctors, firefighters, policemen, truck drivers, people keeping the stores open and running. Take it one day at a time. Take it one step at a time. Get to your next meal. You know, a lot of times I talk to audiences that have uh, nothing to do with the military or even first responders, sometimes uh, bankers, sometimes private companies that, you know, make the, the next best widget out there, people from all walks of life. But one of the things I always talk about, and it's a, a phrase that I have tattooed on the inside of my arm, it's called earn your trident every day. And, you know, that in the SEAL teams means just because you went through all that hell to earn your trident and and prove to yourself that you, you know, are now accepted as part of the team doesn't mean you get to lay off or relax or rest on your laurels. You got to earn it every day. You got to show people every day that you deserve it. And so when I talk to other audiences that don't have a military or paramilitary type of organization, you know, it's what is your trident that you should be earning every day? You know, are you a school teacher responsible for, you know, bringing up children or are you just a mom or a dad responsible for having your own children your husband or wife or brother or sister you know are you a, a deacon or an elder in your church whatever it is what is that thing that you want to show people that you should earn every day i don't know maybe it's being the best uh dog walker on the block <laughs> <laughs> everybody has something that they can strive for to be the best at every day and there are a lot of people we all have positions of privilege in our lives every day that some people don't even realize. Like I said, you know, it's, it's a privilege to be a parent, to be a big brother, a big sister, to be, you know, a spouse to somebody who loves you. Those are all big privileges. And even with COVID response right now, people in those positions are, they may not feel privileged. There's privileges and responsibilities but it's trying to do your best every day. And sometimes it's just sitting back and, and realizing, just get through this and then I'll figure out the next thing when it comes to it. You know, it's all, all things are a blessing and a curse. It's trying to find the blessings and, and 
minimize the curses or minimize the effect of the curse. That's very inspiring. And I think that I am going to carry that advice with me. And um, I'm sure we could talk a lot longer about your experience and your wisdom and your knowledge, but I think we're going to wrap it up for now. And I really want to say thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with me. You're welcome. And, and thank you for giving me a platform to, uh, to share what I feel is, is helpful knowledge. Absolutely. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.